Uh, Turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2 as we uh, continue our series in the book of Genesis. Uh, That would probably be page 2 in most of your Bibles. We'll look this morning at Genesis 2, verses 4 through 17. That's a fairly lengthy chunk. If you're able to stand for that, please do so. It is our practice, as as you know, Uh, to stand when we read God's Word together. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's Word stands forever. Let's pray together. We pray, O Holy Holy Spirit, it is Your office, it's Your job, it's Your function within the Godhead having inspired Moses to write and record these words, having preserved these words for that many thousands of years, to now be at work in them, through them, by them, applying them to our own hearts and minds that we would understand and that that we would believe. But more importantly, we pray that you would guide us into all truth, And know and love and live according to your word. Through Christ we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. I told you the Bible was full of errors. I told you the Bible had mistakes in it. I told you the Bible was just written by some people. And, and, and they disagree. They can't agree on everything. I told you the Bible had mistakes in it. I mean, look, you can't even get two chapters into the Bible before you realize 
See, look, the, fir- the first two chapters contradict each other. Why would I bother reading the rest of the Bible? Have you heard people say that? Have you heard people sort of make the claim? Look at that. The first two chapters, right off the bat, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 don't agree. Why would I bother with Genesis 3 all the way through the end of Revelation? Well, because Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 don't disagree. They're not two different accounts of creation. They have two entirely, the focus is entirely different. They, they accomplish an entirely different purpose. It's, it's not that they contradict each other in any way, shape, or form. They're not, they're not opposed to each other at all. They have a, a very different focus. We, we saw in Genesis 1 the, the big broad brush stroke of creation. Six days God brings about all that is. And He does so very easily, simply by the word of His power, by simply speaking things into existence. It's the focus on His power and authority and sovereignty and His creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. And in fact, throughout chapter 1, the word used for God every single time is just that word, God. It's, it's the Hebrew word Elohim. It's the one you're sort of most familiar with. It has to do with His power and authority and sovereignty. And yet, as soon as we get to verse 4, for the next couple of chapters, you get a completely different title for God. Did you, did you notice that? If you read chapter 1, it's God, God, God every single time. And verse 4, right off the bat, you get this combination, Lord, God. And, and Lord, in your English Bibles, in most of them at least, it's all capitals. It's not just a capital L, but the O-R-D are also capitals. They're all capital letters. That, that tells you something. You should make a note in your margin. Right there in verse 4. And feel free to do it the other, what, 20 times it shows up in the next couple of chapters if you, if you, if you must. But that, that tells you, that communicates to you that, that Moses wrote in addition to the word Elohim. He also used Yahweh, God's covenant name. It's a name, the name given to Moses in Exodus 3. It's, it's God saying to His people, I am your covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. I'm not just the out there, sovereign, speak, and all things exi- exist God, completely distant from you. I am that. Elohim is still here. But I'm also with you. And, and I, I make covenant with you. I'm in a relationship with you. And I've revealed myself to you with this other special covenant name, this name Yahweh. In other words, the focus of chapter 2 is not on the broad brush God spoke and everything exists. It's on on man and his relationship both to God and to creation. Chapter 2 focuses in on, on man. Genesis 1 gives you the, the general creation of everything, and chapter 2 now focuses in on, on man and his relationship to God and creation. In fact, you, you get this another way in verses 5 and 6. You'll notice that there's, 
Um, the image of chaos still. We saw that in, in, in Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, that there was this sort of sense of, of chaos. And, and even here in 5 and 6, there's a, a sense of, of chaos, which, by the way, would have, been, would have been comforting to the Israelites. Somewhere leaving Egypt, perhaps Moses wrote this after they left Egypt and, and were on their way to the promised land and in the wilderness, in the desert, in, the, in this sort of unknown, in-between space. And in 5 and 6, you still have this sense of, of, of chaos. There's, there's no, no small plant of the field. It's not there yet. No bush of the field. It's not there yet. It, rain hasn't come yet. But notice the other reason why those things aren't there. Because man's not there yet. Did you notice that? And there was no man to work the ground. You can tell there's a a narrowing of the lens, a focusing of the lens from the big wide angle of creation zooming in on man and his relationship to God. Two things I want you to see in this passage. First is God's Provision for Adam in the garden. We, we know this. I mean, I guess we sort of know this instinctively. We, we don't exist if God doesn't make us. Adam and Eve don't exist if God doesn't form them and put them in the garden. Mankind doesn't exist unless God creates him. That's the picture over and over again in this, chap- this chapter. In fact, as you read, you'll notice that God does all the work. God does everything. Even, even what hasn't been done is hasn't been done because God hasn't done it. There's no rain because God hasn't commanded it to rain yet. God forms, uh, created the heavens and the earth, verse 4. God hasn't caused it to rain yet, verse 5. And God takes the dust and forms man and creates this, this, this atom, this body, this being. God's doing all the work. Throughout the entire chapter, God is the one at work. God's providing life for man. God's providing life for mankind. He scoops up dirt, dust, and shapes Adam out of it. Forms him from the very... Dirt of the ground. That's a rather humbling beginning compared to what you saw in chapter 1. Created in God's image. That's true. Evolutionists don't, don't get it. We came from monkeys. No, that's actually too high. We came from dirt. We came from way below monkeys. I mean, you think too highly of yourself if you think we came from monkeys. This chapter says we actually come from the dust and the dirt of the earth. That's our background. That's where we come from. But notice that having a body is not enough. Having a body was not enough for Adam to be Adam. Did you notice what else God does? Not only does he provide Adam a body, but then he breathes life into him. You realize you don't do that from a distance. I have this memory in my head that I have tried for 
I don't know, at least 30 years to get rid of. I was 10, maybe 12, 13-ish, swimming at the pool. When there was a lifeguard shift change, I was on the diving board. There's a lifeguard shift change. And when the lifeguards, when the shift changed, you had to stop. You couldn't dive in until the one got off and the other one got on. Well, the, the girl that was getting off was somebody I kind of knew. And, and she says, well, just J- Jeff, go ahead and jump in. And I'll just, I'll just practice and I'll save your life, right? You pretend to drown and I'll come save you. And then, that, then she'll take over for me. So I jumped in and she... She did. She jumped off the platform and wrapped her arm around me, dragged me over to the side. And I made her do it all. I mean, I just kind of went limp and kind of made her do the whole work, get me up on the side of the pool. I was kind of curious as to see how she was going to pull that off. Until she tilted my head back and got this close. And I kind of freaked out. (laughs) For obvious reasons. You don't breathe life into somebody's mouth, into somebody's nostrils from a long way away. It's a little too intimate for me. I guess maybe somewhere in a locker room I should be telling the story. You had this 15-year-old girl, 16, 17. I don't even, I have no idea who it was. It was a little too close, a little too intimate. You should get that from Genesis 2. You should get that from this passage. That, that God doesn't just speak from a long way off and form Adam as though he's a very distant and far away careless God. Not only does he take the dust and form man, he then leans over and breathes life into him. He provides Adam with a body. He provides Adam with life. He even provides Adam with everything he needs to sustain that life. Did you you notice the garden? God plants a garden. Oh, there's another thing God did, verse 8. God planted a garden, and then He put Adam in it. The garden's in the east. It's it's, uh, in Eden, in the east. So you get the sense that Eden is a place east of where... Moses and the Israelites are. Assyria would have been east of Israel. Assyria would have been east of the promised land. The Tigris and Euphrates rivers would have been east of of where Moses was. And there God puts Adam. This lush garden, lavish abundance, everything he needs for life. The trees are beautiful. The fruit is beautiful. It's delicious. It's good for food and pleasant to the sight. It's not just, it's not merely functional. It's also beautiful. It's gorgeous. Everything he needs to survive, everything he needs to flourish, and the trees are, because there's all this water, there's a river, and it splits into four rivers and there's everything that 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 Adam needs everything that man needs to live and survive trees producing fruit everything he needs to eat you think back through the beautiful places you've seen 
there was a, a time Nancy and I had been married probably seven or eight years. And the church we were the church I was on staff, um, and the church did a Valentine's Day dinner for married couples. And they played a game, they played uh, the newlywed game. And I don't remember whether, whether they did it in rounds. In my memory, we are up there with a couple, uh, some of our favorite people in the church, to be honest with you, uh, probably been married 30 years at that point. He was an elder. It was just the two couples. I don't know if there was another couple was supposed to be there and wasn't, or whether we had gotten into the finals somehow, but I have this memory of, of being asked. One of the questions we had to sort of figure out, you know, the, you know how the deal is, one of the one of the, the one spouse leaves the room and asks questions, and you have to, the other spouse has to come in and guess how the first spouse would answer the questions. Well, none of that matters. How we did, none of that matters. We tied. Um, what really matters, though, is the question was the most beautiful scenery scene you've seen together. Now, that was a bit of a conundrum because it was similar to the question beforehand, and I had to figure out whether, how, whether Nancy would answer the same way twice or switch. We, we knew we had the two places. It was down to one of two places. And we had the same places, but the question was, which one would we... None of that matters. Their answer, they, as they painted this picture, ah, oh, sunset, dinner, Mykonos, that's in Greece. We couldn't compete with that, by the way. We couldn't compete with Mykonos, Greece, eating dinner outside, watching the sunset over the Mediterranean Sea. I, I didn't have that. My, my answer today would involve uh, a lake probably over about 11,000 feet in Colorado. I, I didn't have that answer then either, for that matter. But you think back to the, the beautiful places you've seen, the beauty of creation, those places where you've just sat back and examined God's handiwork. Even that probably pales in comparison to where Adam was put. There was not yet sin in the world. I mean, this is, this is the last time you will see perfection until the end of Genesis. I mean, the, the end of Revelation. This is your last glimpse of perfection until we get until you get to the end of Revelation. You don't live in perfection. You don't live in this garden. Yes, the mountains of Colorado are amazingly beautiful, but they are affected by the effects of sin somehow. The effects of living in a fallen, broken world. God's provision for Adam in the garden. It's into that lush garden paradise that God puts Adam. But notice, secondly, we also see God's probation of Adam in the garden. God finally speaks, verse 16. Adam's, Adam's put there in the garden. Uh, verse 15, to, to work it and to keep it, to, if you're familiar with the, the bluegrassy song, Big Rock Candy Mountain, there's a line in Big Rock Candy Mountain where they sing, where they hung the jerk that invented work in the Big Rock Candy Mountain. Uh, work is created by God, even in the garden, 
Even before the fall, work is not a four-letter word. It's, it's not one of those, well, I mean, the only reason I work is because we live in a fallen, broken, sinful world. No, that's actually we work because we're created in God's image. Adam is put there in this garden to work it and to keep it. It's, it actually has um, overtones of Adam's priestly duty in the garden. We sort of see Adam as, as the vice regent in chapter 1 and as a priest in chapter 2. And it's there that God speaks to Adam in verses 16 and 17. You see all the see all the trees with the fruit? You see all the delicious look? You see the beautiful trees? The real juicy fruit? Big apples that just are phenomenal. Oranges that... I don't, I don't know what all was there. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just making it up. Eat it all. You can have all of that you want. Except for that one tree. Just don't eat the fruit of that tree. Notice you may freely eat, but of that tree you may not eat. God enters into a covenant with Adam. He enters into the covenant of works right here in those two words. A covenant. If, you're, if, you've, if you've ever learned the children's catechism, what is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement between two or more persons. That's the children's catechism, which, by the way, I think is a quote from St. Augustine. So not only do you know the children's catechism, but you also know St. Augustine. It's, it's a, or to quote Palmer Robertson, a bond in blood sovereignly administered. It's, it's this kind of agreement between two people. Those are fine definitions. Here's the catch. Where does Adam get to say, wait, hang on, time out, God. I'll give you this if you'll give me that. I'll grant you this if you'll take away that. Or for that matter, uh, where does, did I say Moses, Adam? I meant Adam in that chapter. Where does Moses in Exodus 20 say, well, hold on, time out. Um, we'll, We'll take 1, 3, 6, 7, 8, and 10 but don't make us bother with two and four and five. I mean, it doesn't work that way. It, it, you're sort of reminded of the peasant in, in, in Monty Python, The Search for the Holy Grail. You remember this when King Arthur shows up and the, the peasant starts to complain, who are you? Well, I'm your king. I'm, I, well, I didn't vote for you. King Arthur said, you, you don't vote for a king. It doesn't work that way. You you don't get to, the creature doesn't get to go to God and say, now God, let's make a deal. Let let me tell you how this is going to work. Let me tell you how this is going to go. You're going to do some things for me, and I'm going to do a few things for you. More than I do for, you know, that other guy. I, I don't, I mean... People claim to have made these kinds of deals with God. They, well, God and I, have, we have this understanding. No, you don't. This covenant, God makes this covenant with Adam. It's sovereignly administered. God comes to Adam and says, here's the agreement. Here's the covenant. Here's how this works. Here's how this is going to go. I am going to give you all of these trees. 
and from them you may freely eat. You hungry? Time for lunch? Help yourself. You wake up from that mid-afternoon nap, you've you've been working in the hot sun, and you you take a little nap, and you you wake up and you, you need a little snack? Help yourself. Don't eat from that one tree. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. That, that's the one that's off limits. That's the only one you, you can't eat. The, I mean, it's going to give you shade. You can lean against it if you need to. You can work the ground under it. You can rest your shovel again. I mean, he didn't have a shovel, but just don't eat the fruit of that tree. It's sovereignly administered. God comes to Adam and says, here are the terms. And, and Adam doesn't get to go, well, but I mean, I didn't, I didn't eat it all. I mean, it was just a bite. That's not really eating the fruit. I, I just took one bite of it. In fact, I spit some of it out because I started feeling bad. So I, only, I took, only took one bite. I really only swallowed half of it. Or, or, but I thought that's what you meant. I didn't understand. It's very clearly understood. It's very easy to understand. And notice the requirements of this covenant. The only expectation is perfect, perpetual, personal obedience. Look at verses 16 and 17. God demands perfect obedience. Partial obedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. Doing part of it is not doing it. Partial obedience is disobedience. Putting away one shirt and one shoe when you're told to clean your room is not cleaning your room. It doesn't work that way. Notice God says, don't eat from the fruit of that tree. It's simple. It's easy to understand. It's easy for Him to to comprehend. Eat freely of all the other trees and plants. You may not eat the fruit of that tree. He demands perfect obedience. You can't take a bite and eat some of the bite and spit some of it out and say, but look, most of the fruit's still here in my hand. It's not actually in my belly. So I didn't eat the whole fruit. Partial obedience is disobedience. God demands perfect obedience. He also demands perpetual obedience. Look at verse 17. Notice the language. In the day that you eat of it, Whenever that comes, whenever you eat the fruit of that one tree, you will surely die. Whenever that comes. In other words, you're expected to keep this command forever. Perfect, perpetual obedience. But then it's also perfect, perpetual, and personal obedience. It's tempting sometimes. Go clean your room. I wonder if I can convince my younger sibling to clean my room for me. I wonder if I can pay them a dollar to clean my room for me. I've got some extra candy. What if I, if I, if I get my younger sibling and say, look, I'll give you three Reese's um, peanut butter eggs on Easter if you'll clean my room for me today. Adam doesn't get that option. Adam doesn't say, well, let me get someone else to do it for me. 
Let me hire a servant or let me conscript someone else to keep this command for me. Notice over and over and over again. He took him and put him in the garden. He commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. You shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The pronouns are all against Adam. He has to obey perfectly, perpetually, and personally. That's the the demands, the commands of the covenant of works. Of course, we know that Adam failed. We know that Adam doesn't keep the covenant of works. We know that Adam fails. In fact, Lord willing, that's actually the passage we'll be preaching on Easter Sunday. Some of you are going to go, wait, 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 hang on, time out. You're going to preach the fall on Resurrection Sunday? Yes, absolutely we are. It's precisely because of the fall that we need the resurrection. It's precisely because of the fall that the resurrection is that much more glorious to us. But we should get to Adam's failure on Easter Sunday. But you notice, Romans 5, Paul picks up this this idea, we read this just a few minutes ago, where Adam is seen as our covenant head, our federal head. We know that Adam failed, and when Adam failed, we all failed. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. When Adam died, we all died. And we, all who are in Adam suffer because of his failure. The picture in Romans 5, of course, is that we have another representative. We have another one to take our place, not just in sin, in Adam, but also in righteousness in Christ. You know, people will object, people will complain. I don't think it's fair for Adam to be my representative. I don't think that's fair for Adam to to have to be my covenant head. I mean, why didn't I get a say so? Or why don't I get to stand on my own two feet? Why, why is it that that's just not fair? It's not fair for Adam to represent me in sin. I didn't, didn't want him to do that. Why, does he, why is that the way it is? You ever heard anybody to complain? You ever heard anybody complain about Jesus representing them before God? We'll gladly take the blood and righteousness of Christ and say that is my only hope before God the righteous judge. We'll gladly take Him as our covenant head. We'll gladly take Him as our representative and then complain that Adam, if you're going to throw off headship, you've got to stand on your own and Christ cannot be your covenant head. Christ cannot be your option. You can't have one without the other, in other words. That's exactly where we are in light of this passage. God's overwhelming provision for Adam in the garden. Followed by this covenant of works. God's probation of Adam in the garden. Let me just make two applications from this passage. There are many more we could make. But let me just make two. First, this. Don't ever envision God as a miser. 
as, as begrudgingly doling out things to his kids because he has to, and it's a pain for him, and he doesn't like it, and he's got a real scowl on his face. Okay, fine, here, have, have another gift. Okay, okay, fine, have another, you're back. That, that, that would be the exact opposite of the picture of God in Genesis 2. He put Adam in the most amazing, lavish garden anyone could ever hope to have. It's this overwhelming picture of providing for Adam in that garden. That's what Paul says in Ephesians about the gifts that he's been given that have been given to us. We have a couple of spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. We have a few spiritual blessings in some of the heavenly places. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. God is lavished. His love on you in His Son and lavish these spiritual blessings on us. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Paul writes in Ephesians 1 and 2. Don't don't picture God as as an ogre begrudgingly giving gifts, but as one who loves His children and lavishes freely on them as proven and evidenced by the fact that He gave us His Son to die on the cross in our place. Which really is the second application of this passage. If you're here this morning and you're still just in Adam, we're all in Adam by genealogy. We all descend from Adam by ordinary generation to steal the language of the Shorter Catechism. We all are from Him. And so when He sinned, we all sinned. When He failed to keep the covenant of works, we all failed to keep the covenant of works. When He died, we all died. The promise and hope then is not to do better, but to run to a new head, to find a new representative, to find someone else who will stand between you and God and plead not your guilt, but your innocence. And that's the picture of Romans 5, that that Jesus is that new covenant representative. He is that uh, federal head for us. Our hope, our plea, it's not that we're going to be good, or that we're going to do better than most of the people around us and just hope that God grades on a curve. Our hope and plea is that we have the blood and righteousness of Christ. He kept what Adam failed to keep. Perfectly, perpetually, and personally. He did all that Adam failed to do. And he did so that that we, through faith in Christ, might gain life with Him forever. You know, you've been taught, I'm guessing, that you're not saved by works. You know that's not true. Right? I mean, if you've been told, if you've only been told you're not saved by works, that actually is not true. You are saved by works. You're just not saved by your works. You're saved by Christ. His obedience to the Father. 
even to go to the cross, to shed His blood in our place. We have His life and His death and hope of our own resurrection because we have His resurrection. Run to Him. May He be, by faith, your new covenant head. What you need, if you're still in Adam this morning, what you need is not to go out of here this morning and try harder. What you need is a a new head. You need a new covenant representative. You need to run to Christ, to trust in Him and in Him alone for your salvation. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your obedience, perfect, perpetual, personal obedience to the Father. That You would keep the covenant of works as Adam failed to do. You were given a command and You carried it out to completion. You were willing to walk on this earth as a man, to take on flesh, to come as the second Adam to keep the law, to fulfill all righteousness, because because we, we couldn't. And yet to suffer and die and and bleed, even be buried, not for sins you committed, but for ours, for our failures. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have defeated sin and death. And that our hope, therefore, is not in our merit, not in the first Adam, but in the second. We pray that You would grow and strengthen our faith and trust and confidence in You. And that we would ascribe to You all glory and honor for our salvation. Through Christ we ask it. Amen.